of years ago, I did some work at the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. There is an entire and pretty large museum dedicated to the Bible. If you're ever lucky enough to be in D.C., it's worth a visit for um, reasons, shall we say, both good and bad. Um, but there's a whole impact of the Bible. And the exhibit begins with a series of displays about the Bible in American history. Let's just say it's complicated. In one cabinet is a volume of the Women's Bible, which was published by Elizabeth Cady Stanton in 1895. Stanton was an influential advocate for women's suffrage, and she blamed the teachings of the church for much of the problem of denying women their rights. Her Bible included commentary interpreting what she saw as the Bible's real message about women. In another cabinet is one of the so-called slave Bibles of Lishan. Slave Bibles missing out stories and sometimes whole books to downplay themes of freedom and liberation and emphasize freedom themes of obedience and submission. Verses like this one from Titus, teach your slaves to obey their masters, definitely made the cut. Everything in the slave Bible was used to perpetuate the idea that slavery and ownership was the natural, even God-ordained, order of the world. In a kind of roundabout way, that's why we're beginning this series this week, Hooray for the Matriarchy. How we read the Bible really matters. And for the next four weeks, we're going to be exploring some of the stories of women from the Bible. Obviously, we couldn't possibly do that theme justice in four weeks. Neither should these four weeks be the only time in the year when we talk about stories of women. Um, but in the next three weeks, you're going to hear stories of Deborah, Miriam, and Hagar. But this week, we're beginning with the title, Forgotten Voices, thinking of women whose stories are minimized and marginalized, women who, along with men, are often unnamed in the Bible, yet whose inclusion in the text, I think, tells us something really important about our own calling in the world. So how have women's voices been forgotten, and why does it matter? Now, quick pop quiz for you. Does anyone know how many women are named in the Hebrew Bible? That's the Old Testament. I wonder if we started shouting out names, how many we'd get to. And um, we're not actually going to do that, because we'll be here for too long. Um, there are, in fact, 111 women named in the Hebrew Bible. Some we know, maybe Ruth or Esther, useful because they've got books named after them, so a little bit more noticeable. Don't know or we haven't heard of, but their stories are there. Just to um, test Nathan's pronunciation skills, um, but because enlisting the ancestors begin with the patriarchs. Time and time again, we're told in the Bible 
that God is the God of Abraham. Each story is often about the male heroes, or so-called heroes, actually many of them are pretty violent. Abraham, Moses, Joseph, David, Samson, Gideon, the list goes on. That in an absolute break with how genealogies of the time were put together, four women are... ...life of Uriah and Mary. Their inclusion is intriguing but it's not an utter story. Most histories are written by those who conquered, those who won, those who controlled the story and the narrative. And yet the Bible tells a story in the Hebrew Bible of the Jewish people who were constantly conquered and overrun um, and exiled. And so in that context, the Bible is often subversive and often disruptive. It is written in a time and culture completely formed by patriarchy, a system where men hold power and women are largely excluded from power. So the Bible is this weird mix. It is rich with stories of women who are oppressed, but who also have agency. Women who are silenced, but who make their voices heard. Many of the women in the Hebrew Bible especially, whose stories we know, are foreigners. They're outsiders in Israel. Their stories aren't the centre of the text. They appear and disappear. We get a little, little, little bit about them, and we never know what happens to them after that. Their feelings and actions are unexplored. Their story arcs don't get completed. In a text that's often about power and nation-building, the men's stories are the point but the women's stories are there. Because God is the God of Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, and Keturah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob, Rachel, Leah, Bilhah, and Zilpah. Without these matriarchs, we have no more patriarchs. Without Shifra and Puah, the Israelite midwives who subvert Pharaoh's orders to kill all the baby boys born in to the Jewish people and instead tell him that Hebrew women just give birth really quickly so they can't get there in time. They've already pushed them out, hidden them away somewhere without Shifra and Pua. Without Jochebed, who hides her baby in the reeds. Without Miriam, who watches over her brother and saves his life without the Egyptian princess who raises him, we have no Moses. And while Moses parts the waters of the Red Sea, Miriam leads the people of Israel across with dancing. When Israel sends spies into Canaan looking for their promised land, it's Rahab who saves them. Deborah leads the people in peacetime as well as in war, a war that's won when Jael, another woman, drives a tent peg through Sisera's skull. Tamar, Dinah, the daughters of Zelophehad, Hannah, Esther, Abigail. We don't have time for their stories, but even to say their names is important because we don't. Time and again, 
the fate of the people of Israel pivots on the actions of women. The women's stories are there. If we don't think that the Bible celebrates women as leaders, prophets, a source of wisdom and courage, as leaders of the resistance, subverters, champions of justice, then we're not reading the Bible very well. Patriarchy is not just a problem in the writing of the text, it's a problem in our reading of it as well. We continue to emphasize the stories of men, missing out the essential stories of women. Why is this important? Well, aside from the fact that 50% of the population can't find themselves in the story of women's voices are forgotten, when we read the Bible through our own bias, we compound the problem, we weaponize it, we fail to challenge interpretations that justify and lead to injustice. Elizabeth Cady Stanton wasn't wrong when she argued that the teaching of the church over the centuries, based on this biblical text that's steeped in patriarchy, has played a huge role in denying women their rights. From Eve to Mary, women have been cast as either sinners, whores, or saints, virgins. It begins with Augustine in the fourth century, um, but it carries on and it gathers pace. Here are some of my favorite quotes for you. I actually have a document on my computer called Quotes About Women, so I picked out a couple of my favorites. This is from the 15th century manual of the Inquisitors Against Witches. When a woman thinks alone, she thinks evil. For the woman was made from the crooked rib, which is bent in the contrary direction from the man. Women conspired constantly against spiritual good. Her very name, Femina, means absence of faith. She is an insatiable lust by nature. Because of this lust, she consorts even with devils. It's for this reason that women are especially prone to the crime of witchcraft, from which men have been preserved by the maleness of Christ. One more. Here's um, Martin Luther, the great reformer on the subject of marriage. Eve originally was more equal a partner with Adam, but because of sin, the present woman is a far inferior creature. Because she is responsible for the fall, woman is in a state of subjugation. The man rules the home and the world, wages war and tills the soil, the woman is like a nail driven into the wall. She sits at home. Those are rather um, extreme examples, chosen for a little bit of fun. But if you go into a Christian bookshop today, or you step inside some churches, you won't have to look hard to find ideas that are rooted in patriarchy, and that still deny the place, the voice, and the role of women in church and in society. And ideas like the purity culture that have heaped shame on women for their sexuality and their identity. This weaponizing of scripture is not just a problem for how we read the Bible in relation to women, but to everyone whose voice is minimalized or marginalized, to every group of people who find themselves pushed to the outside or ignored. I think we all know ways in which the Bible has been used against people because of their race, their gender, their sexuality, or their social status. The Bible is problematic. 
Uh, referring to the Hebrew scriptures, Professor Will Gaffney, if you don't know her work, it's worth reading. She's written a brilliant book called Womanist Midrash. She says this about the Bible. The reprehensible gender and sexual mores of the Stone and Iron Ages are still in effect for some of the women, men, boys and girls living in our digital age. Our sacred texts do not proclaim or even envision a world without slavery and the subordination of women, but they lay a foundation for us to transcend them and their limitations. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. Do to others what you would have them do to you. What is hateful for you, do not do to another. In the Messiah, there is no longer slave or free, male or female. So the women's stories are there in the Bible. We need to make sure we read them well. That means we have to untangle them from their own limitations and from those that we've placed on them. Some of you may know um, John Bell. If you are a Greenbelt regular, he's a teacher from the Iona community and um, just a brilliant storyteller around the Bible. He tells a story about leading a retreat with a group of church leaders where he um, sets them off into different groups and half of the groups he asks them to um, write down the names of the 12 male disciples and then also to write down three things that they know about each of the disciples. To the other half of the groups, he sends them away and says, um, think about all the women who are followers of Jesus in the gospel and write down what you know about them. So off they go. When they come back again, the men's groups start, their names on the wall. Well, most groups have named most of the 12 disciples. Gee, they're a little bit tricky to remember. What about when it comes to what we know about them? Well, Peter, we know quite a lot about Peter. People could find three things to write about him. Matthew, he's a tax collector, collects taxes. <laughs> James the less, lesser than another James. Uh, Andrew, Andrew brought a small boy with loaves and fishes, some Greeks, and possibly, according to one gospel, his brother to Jesus. What about the group that thought about the women? John Bell says, when they came back with their pieces of paper, there was a whole wall full of information. The woman at the well, we don't know her name, but she gets a whole chapter in John's Gospel that she shares with Jesus. No other character in the Gospel gets a whole chapter of their own. She's the first evangelist. She brings a whole village to follow Jesus. John Bell jokes that Andrew brings a small boy, some Greeks, and his brother for which he becomes the patron saint of Scotland. This woman brings the whole village, and we don't know her name. We know more about the woman who washes Jesus' feet with her tears than we do about five of the disciples after whom cathedrals are named. There has been an imbalance. There are 22 women in the gospel whose interactions with Jesus are recorded. We don't know many of their names, but we do know their faith and we do know how Jesus responds to them. The woman who was bleeding and who touched Jesus. And Jesus says that her faith is greater 
than anyone else's. The Syrophoenician woman who calls Jesus out on his use of ray and by their own admission of walking away condemn themselves. The woman who washes Jesus' feet with her tears. The woman who gives away her last coin in the temple offering. The woman who pours expensive oil on Jesus' head, which Jesus thinks is a waste and Jesus chastises him. The women who wait at the cross while Jesus' male disciples flee. The women who watch his burial, who visit his tomb, and who are the first witnesses of the resurrection. They're not named, but they're bearers of the most important news in history. So I wanted to say this morning, for those of us who have felt excluded or marginalized or unheard, by a version of Christianity that has lifted up the powerful and silenced those on the edges. The place of these women in the text reminds us that we are all equally made in the image of God. We are all included. We are all in, against the odds, yes, from the margins, unnamed, imperfect. Nonetheless, the women's stories are there. Jesus eats with women, he's offered hospitality with women, he takes their experience seriously, he argues with them, he eats with them, he enjoys their company, he allows himself to be touched by them who are made equally in the image of God. So women's stories are there in the Bible and we need to tell them well, but we also need to tell them honestly. And if we're gonna be honest about the story of women in the Bible, then we need to talk about what Rachel Held Evans has called the dark stories, what Phyllis Tribble calls the texts of terror. Suffer beyond all others in the text, and often God is silent about their suffering. Through the text, women are the victims of terror and violence and, in, and injustice, and even in metaphor, when Israel's in trouble, she's depicted as a woman a daughter destitute on the streets, a mother weeping, a harlot cast out. It's impossible to read the Bible without encountering the voices of women who suffer. And as a woman, approaching those stories is hard. Rachel Held Evans said that as she read these, women, these stories as a young woman, she says, I kept anticipating some sort of postscript or epilogue chastising the major players for their sins, a sort of arrested development style lesson to wrap it all up, and that's why you should always challenge the patriarchy. But no such epilogue exists. While women are assaulted, killed, and divided as plunder, God stands by, mute as clay. She goes on, those who seek to glorify biblical womanhood have forgotten the dark stories They've forgotten the concubine of Bethlehem, the daughter of Jephthah, and the countless unnamed women who lived and died between the lines of scripture, exploited, neglected, ravaged, and crushed at the hand of the patriarchy, are as much a part of our shared narrative as Deborah, Esther, Rebecca, and Ruth. The story of the unnamed concubine in Judges 19 strikes me as one of the most terrible stories that the Bible offers. Um, I've written about it before, I was going to read it this morning, but it's not really a story for reading on a Sunday morning in a room full of people. So briefly, it comes at the end of Judges when Israel has no king 
And the text tells us that everybody did whatever they wanted. There was no law in the land and the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. So these are dangerous days. Violence is everywhere and those in charge abuse their power. The gruesome string of events, the Israelite and his concubine, or as Will Gaffney translates it, womb slave. And if you want to know why Handmaid's Tale is a really good depiction of the Old Testament, come and ask me afterwards for the translation of Bilhar's story that Will Gaffney does, which is definitely a little bit too fruity for um, this. But um, Levi and his womb slave are traveling and um, they don't get home in time, so they have to stay in the middle of a town in the hill country in the middle of the night, and it's dangerous. So they end up in the house of an old man um, sheltering, and a group of men surround the house, demanding that the Levite, not the woman, but the Levite, come outside in a story that parallels the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Instead, the two men offer up the women to the mob, both the daughter of the old man and the Levite's concubine. We don't know what happens to the daughter, she's not mentioned again, but the Levite pushes his concubine out and the woman is sexually assaulted by a group of man and men and left for dead. And in the morning, the Levite gets up to go on his way, seemingly undisturbed about what's happened to his concubine, opens the door and finds her on the ground with her hands on the threshold. So he takes her home. It's not clear whether she's alive or not. He takes her home. He cuts her body into 12 pieces and sends one to each of tribe of Israel. The story is an indictment told at the end of the story arc of Judges of what kingless and lawless Israel has become. Violence begets violence begets violence. And war ensues between the tribes or the men of Benjamin, except for 600 are killed or the women are killed or the children are killed. 400 women are snatched from another tribe to be wives for, the four, for 400 of the 600 remaining men of Benjamin. They can't quite get on with only 400 women and 600 men. So 200 women, young girls, are taken from another town. It's a terrible, terrible story. There's no justice for the woman. She's abandoned and used in every way. She's not named. Only the story of the violence done to her lives on. Phyllis Tribble says that of all the characters in scripture, she is the least. She is the least. But her story is there. Hasn't been edited out or left behind. Her story is there. This nameless woman demands our attention. She doesn't speak in the text. Only her father and her husband speak, yet she's not silenced. Her suffering speaks for her and calls out for our outrage. Lest we need reminding, misogyny, violence and abuse of power are not confined to the distant past. Violence still disproportionately affects women and girls around the globe. Worldwide, one in three women has experienced physical or sexual violence because she is a woman. Women are more at risk of domestic violence, sexual assault and harassment, forced marriage, sex trafficking, and genital mutilation. Although people of all genders experience violence and abuse online, the abuse experienced by women is specifically directed at their gender and their identity. Women are often sexualized 
or a particular aspect of their identity, often involving racism or transphobia, is targeted. 21% of women in the UK have experienced online abuse or harassment. Time and time again in the Bible, the suffering of women points to the need and the fight for justice, to the failure of Israel to live up to its calling to care for the poor, the orphaned, the widow, the stranger. When you read the story of the Levite's concubine, or the story of Tamar, or the story of Rizpah, Rizpah's story we probably don't know, she was Saul's concubine. She sits in the desert with the corpses of her sons for six months after David has had them killed, fending off wild animals and birds, demanding justice for their death and burial for their bodies, and she wins. David has them buried along with the bones of Saul and Jonathan. It's impossible not to think of contemporary stories when we read stories like that one. The mothers of the disappeared in Argentina parallel Rizpah's stories in an extraordinary way. So I think the Bible teaches us that these terrible stories, I, I was really thinking, I'm not glad they're there. I'm not like, oh, it's a good thing that women's stories are included in the Bible, even the violent ones. We wish they weren't there because they're awful stories, but they, they are there, and what they point us to is the need for justice and our part in that. Phyllis Tribble concludes that the story is alive and all is not well. Beyond confession, we must say never again, speaking the word not to others, but to ourselves. Repent, repent. So here I think is the challenge and the invitation to us. I'm sorry, this is like the most miserable sermon, but it's, <laughs> it's really important stuff. And actually there's liberation to be found if we go into some of these dark spaces in the Bible. I think the challenge and the invitation to us as we read the stories of women is yes, to be inspired by their leadership, their courage, their flaws, their faith. Yes, to be encouraged that their stories are told, even against the odds, from the margins, subverting power, leading the resistance. But most of all, to be reminded of our calling as the people of God always to bring good news that is freedom for the poor and justice for the oppressed. Let's pray. May we, each one of us, find ourselves in this story of faith. May we know our value, our worth and our identity formed as we, each one of us are, in the image of God. May we learn to listen for stories from the margins and amplify their voice. May we be compelled to act for justice, to resolve oppression and exploitation wherever we find it. May these stories not trouble us in vain. May we use them for some good. Amen.